0: Amen, thank you, good seeing you this morning. If you're a guest, again, thank you so much for being here, whether in person or online. And uh, I do hope that you will follow up during the course of the service as the Spirit uh, speaks to your heart and mind, whether through the songs already, the prayers that have been offered, uh, uh, the words that will be now proclaimed. We, We do pray for you to have a sensitivity to the leading of God's Spirit. And for some of you, it may mean being called to the life of faith, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, we would love to join with you and be a part of that conversation with you of what that means to be a follower of Christ. So we do hope that you would take the time to just text that word "FL" respond to the number that is provided for you, 833-571-3475. And we'd love to follow up with you in regard to that or maybe becoming a part of a, a church family, which is a vital part of our faith experience. Well, this morning we find ourselves in the concluding verses of the book of uh, Romans chapter eight. We have camped out a bit here in chapter eight uh, because it is just, uh, it is so rich with the wealth of, of truth that Paul is, is setting forth and uh, really may be the most significant chapter in all of Paul's uh, writing in the entire Pauline corpus. Arguably chapter eight might be his most significant uh, word. So we've kind of camped out here for uh, a bit and uh, he's bringing to conclusion today what is a significant section of Romans. If we understand Romans being broken down in sections from chapters 1 and 4, 5 through 8, uh, 9 through 11, which we will entertain next, and then 12 through 16 will be the concluding section. But uh, Paul is wrapping up here a section that uh, began all the way back in chapter 5 in, in verse 1. And what Paul is going to do in verses 31 through 39 is really a reiteration of everything that he has already said preceding, going back to chapter 5 and, and verse 1. And it is, it is, a, it is a summation that, that gives confidence and conviction to us as the people of God regarding the assurance of God's promises. This entire section is about assurance, assurance regarding the salvation that God is bringing about the redemption of of the entire created order. And if anything, over the course of this study, one of the things that I hope and pray that has been a transformational shift for you perhaps in understanding the salvation of God is that it is so much more than just about you missing hell and making it to heaven. That uh, the salvation God is accomplishing is, is far more expansive in scope and scale it has to do with the redemption of the entire created order and so what Paul is saying to us is look what God is doing look what God has done look what he is still doing what he has done what he is doing through the Messiah Christ Jesus our Lord And so as Paul begins here in verse 1, it's this resounding word of assurance, resounding word of confidence where he says, what then shall we say to these things? Well, what is he referring to? Well, again, context is always important. He has just made this resounding affirmation, these words of reassurance back in verse 29, verse 30, naturally verse 31 will come next. And that's what he's referring back to is this these words of confidence and assurance that he is giving to the people, the church at Rome, a people that, that are marginalized, a people that are suffering, a people that are persecuted because of their, their faith. He says, verse 29 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and these and this is just a resounding beat of the drums for these he predestined he also called and these whom he called he also justified and these whom he justified he also glorified. And remember, when Paul talks about foreknowledge, when he talks about predestination, when he talks about election, these did not become confusing, complex terms until the Middle Ages. These didn't become confusing until theologians got hold of them. That's the nature of the academy. It makes things that were simple in thought and makes them very complex and hard to understand. Paul was not writing to theologians. Paul was writing to a very simple people. And when they heard these words read, as Paul's Roman letter was being read to the various house churches there in Rome, perhaps maybe 100 people in in total, when they heard this, they understood it to be words of resounding reassurance regarding what God is accomplishing. You know, they weren't scratching their heads wondering, you know, where's a theologian when you need one? especially those of a jewish background that, that were a part of those house churches perhaps they would have understand this language of predestination election what it is to be the chosen people of god they would understand this to be uh, this they would understand this to be words of reassurance that listen god has a plan god has a purpose don't let present circumstances cause you to wonder and speculate that somehow these things that you're now experiencing negate the future promises of God. They don't. God's plan and purposes are being fulfilled, they're being brought to fruition through the person of Jesus Christ and through even you now in your present tense suffering now. And on the basis of that, that second clause in verse 31, listen to it. If God is for us, who is against us? Based upon all these things that I've said, on the basis of these truths, if God is for us, who is against us? Four times Paul asked a who question. Who is against us? Verse 31. Verse 33 Who will bring charges against God's elect? Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Verse 35, who will separate us? And to all four of these questions, Paul is now going to outline for us, he is going to give us reassurances regarding the promises of God, that God is faithful regardless of what happens. If God is for us, who is against us? Now, listen, that's not a verse, that's not a trite verse to be taken out of context. This isn't a verse that can be used as a proof text for nations that are choosing to go to war. If God is for us, who can be against us? This isn't the kind of verse that you can lift out of context in a a pregame prayer before an athletic event. If God is for us, who can be against us? This isn't a trite little verse for a, for a brand-new 25-year-old life coach who has all the answers that we need to hear. No, these words come from a battle-worn warrior. These are the words of an old saint, beat up because of his faith. This is an old man who who has endured life in hardship because he is a follower of Christ. This is a man who, because of his faith and his allegiance to Christ and not to Caesar, because of his allegiance to Christ, he has been stoned, he has been beaten, he has been shipwrecked, he has been persecuted for no other reason than being a follower of Jesus Christ. A man who could have been filled hate, who could have been filled with hate, bitterness, cynicism, who could have began a pity party and said, woe, is me. Instead, a man who is beat up by life and who has experienced life and endured life, he says to the churches, the people of God, if God is for us, who is against us? He wants us to be confident and assured as a people of God, regardless of our present circumstances. And so what is it to what Paul is pointing us? What is Paul pointing us to? Upon what does our confidence and our assurance rest? What kind of confidence and assurance is it that, that enables a man like, like Paul and all that he has faced to say, if God is for us, who is against us? Now notice in verse 32, the first thing that Paul points to is God's, God's gracious provision. Based upon what has just been said, if God is for us, who is against us? Paul then adds, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, again, this is prefaced upon the bold statement, the assuring statement in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Reading that verse and hearing that verse, my my mind goes immediately. Back to the servant of, of Elijah, his ministering servant. You remember when the Syrian army was, was closing in in 2 Chronicles, Elisha's ministering servant, he was, he was filled with terror. He was struck with, with terror as he saw the, the horde and the army of, of Syria coming in. And Elisha, the prophet, offered these words. He said, be strong and Courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. Paul says, regardless of whatever my circumstances might have been, my confidence and my trust is the one who is greater than than the one that is causing my, my affliction. And so as he speaks in verse 32, as he writes, he reminds us of God's gracious provision. He reiterates again and again what God has done on our behalf. Notice, first of all, it says that he did not spare, that is, he did not withhold his own son. Some think that Paul maybe had in mind because he had such an, because he so oftentimes used the The Old Testament as reference points in his writings and seeing Christ as the fulfillment of all things foretold and all things imaged in, in the Old Testament as he saw Christ as being the fulfillment of all these things. Some have thought that perhaps Paul's referring back to Genesis chapter 22, around verse 12. And there you have Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. But it's not not an accurate metaphor at all for those that might think that way. Yes, Abraham showed a willingness to sacrifice his son, Isaac. But it wasn't going to be an atoning sacrifice. It was just going to be a a display of, of Abraham's own piety. It was not for the atonement of sins for others. And in fact, Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son. But perhaps Paul is using it as just an image and as a model of of the ultimate sacrifice in life. A father sacrificing his son. Secondly, we see that God delivered him over. That is, he delivered him over to to the powers of sin and death to bring about their, their defeat. And then thirdly, notice there in in verse 32 that he who did not spare his son, but, but gave him over, delivered him over, that it was for us all, not some, for all. The atoning death of Christ was sufficient for all. There could be no other. Well, it is the will of God, as scripture says, it is the will of God that all might be saved. Now, now not all will. Not all will respond in in faith and, and trust, but it is the will of God that all might be saved. God doesn't Play favorites. God, God isn't partial. You go to the book of James where, where the sin of partiality is condemned and, and in a book inspired by God uh, where God himself condemns the sin of partiality, him himself is not going to be partial. So we know that God doesn't play favorites. No, what God has done, what God is accomplishing through Christ Jesus is for all how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now the all things there is not our conventional definition of all things. It's not your whims, your wants. He's talking about the context of the salvation that God is, is accomplishing, that God is achieving for the redemption of the world. You see, Paul, Paul's making an argument here from the greater, from the greater to the lesser. Paul said, uh, the argument is, if I'm willing to make the greatest sacrifice, if, if I'm willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, if I'm not going to spare my own son, in fact, if I'm going to deliver him over, hand him over, if I'm going to do the greater thing, why would I not do the lesser things? the lesser things that are necessary to bring about the fulfillment of the salvation that is going to be yours. So when Paul talks about our assurance and the present tense sufferings and the hardships and the trials of this life, he's saying you you can be sure of God's gracious provision that God is doing everything that is necessary to bring about the redemption of the created order, including our our lives. Which brings us to a second thing that Paul would point to, not just God's gracious provision, but also a proactive, God's proactive acquittal. Listen to the words here in verse 33 and 34. Again, the questions are asked, who will bring charges against God's elect? These are rhetorical questions. Who will bring charges against God's elect? Verse 34, another rhetorical question. Who who is the one who who condemns? Now, what what I want us to, to notice is that while Paul is raising rhetorical questions, he responds with theological assertions. He's making statements of theological facts, theological certainties. Who will bring charges against God's elect? Theological assertion God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Theological assertion. Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So here's how it works. In other words, if if anyone would raise accusations against you, If anyone would raise accusations against against you, God's elect. You might see an example of this over in in Revelation chapter 12 in verse 10. But say that, that if anyone would raise accusations against you, God, the final judge, has already acquitted you. You've already been made right with God. That's the theological assertion there in verse 33. God is the one who justifies. God has already determined you're in. God has already made the judgment against you. You're acquitted. We as the people of God, we are acquitted already. Doesn't mean we're not guilty. (laughs) We've been acquitted. There are no accusations to be made that can be made against you. No charges that can be. Well, what what about those who condemn us? What about those that would point to us and and seek to to condemn us, not unlike Satan, who would love our condemnation, why not Satan, like in Job chapter 1, chapter 2? Someone like Job who would seek to condemn God's very elect? Paul says, no, Christ has already died for them. Now notice, notice this is what God has done. This is what God is doing. Because see, when, when there are those like these described in verse 33 and 34, those who would bring charges against God's elect, those that would point to you and say, you know, I'm just, you're not really living up. You're not everything you should be or at least in my understanding of Christianity, you're not everything you should be. You're, you're, not, you're not measuring up. I've got some charges against you and, and your faith. Or What about those that, that would condemn us? Those rhetorical questions are based upon your merit. They're based upon your performance. That somehow you are responsible for your salvation, for, for your worthiness of salvation. No, Paul said God is the one who justifies. What is being accomplished has been initiated by God. It is being accomplished by God. It will be brought to fruition by God. God justifies. And we should find great comfort and assurance that the only one that is in any position to judge us rightly has chosen to acquit us. To make the determination that they are right with God. So it brings us to a third thing. A third assurance that Paul points to. And this is foundational to everything that God has been doing. Everything that God has been accomplishing. To fulfill the covenant to Abraham through Christ Jesus and for the world. And that's God's exhaustive love. Listen to this catalog In response to the question, who will separate us? Here's the fourth question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, Paul says, but in all these things, we, we overwhelmingly conquer. It's kind of a novel word in, in Greek literature that just, just doesn't appear very, it's almost, again, it's almost one of these kind of words that, that Paul has, has created himself to describe something that that is only fitting to the situation. He says, we we overwhelmingly conquer. We are are super conquerors, would be a better translation. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other, other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, if we go back to verse 35, Paul offers an interesting little catalog here of challenges in life. And as you look at this, it's not an exhaustive catalog, but he's writing a catalog of things here, circumstances that were that were relevant in his day and for his audience and for his own life. These these seven things that he lists here, these are things that could certainly cause someone to despair in the moment. But he wants us to know that even when you experience these kinds of things, this does not negate when you're going through this, when you're blinded by these adverse circumstances that overwhelm you, that bring you to a place of groaning as we saw in the last verses. Listen, he he wants us to know these things do not negate the promises of God. These are present tense realities that do not negate the future redemption, the future consummation, the future resurrection that is to come. And in truth, we could add to this list ourselves today. Things, adversities and trials that would have, have application in our world that would have had no application in this first century context. But he says the reason that you and I are able to overcome these things and to be overwhelmingly conquerors is because of what God is doing through him who loved us. Don't think your hardships and your suffering are without meaning. That as God used the suffering of the Christ? Has he used the suffering of his son somehow mysteriously to bring about his redemptive purposes? Your hardships and your pain is no less purposeful not in the sense that the sacrifice of Christ was was lacking, but in the mysteries of of the faith and the providential purposes of God. Our hardships and our trials are not without meaning and, and purpose. And when Paul is reflecting upon this, and again, context is everything. And you have to appreciate the perspective from which Paul is writing in everything that he has endured since he has become a follower of Christ. And as Paul is reflecting upon this, I love the way he says, for I'm convinced. Now I've been through a great deal. For I'm I'm convinced. As I reflect upon all these things, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. nor It's almost like you can envision Paul writing from Corinth. It's almost like he can't write fast enough, trying to cover everything that a person might use in it, as an objection, something that might come into play, something that might come into being that would separate us from the, from the love of God. And it's like he's trying to, to just brainstorm to come up with every scenario, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord and even if he had his amanuensis there the person who who would take dictation perhaps for Paul even if that person was there trying to help Paul Paul what about what about this scenario this no 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 nothing yeah but what about this no not even that Paul some people might say no not even that Paul says you know In light of everything I've been through, I'm convicted, I'm convinced that because of what God is doing, because of what God has done through his son, and what I see God continuing to do in the lives of of his people who are suffering and, and broken, I'm just convinced. That there is absolutely nothing that is able to set us apart from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, Paul is doing something here that I wish we could be mindful of, that that you and I are fully capable of doing. But we don't do it because we tend to be overwhelmed by present circumstances. Paul is writing these words of assurance from the vantage point of God. Paul's not writing from our earthly perspective based upon human circumstances. What Paul is doing is he is over, he is taking this position over into the future, writing from the vantage point of God looking back. And he's writing these words of assurance based upon those theological premises that he set forth in answer to all the questions that might be raised. Who will do this? Who will do that? Paul has assumed the position the vantage point of God himself, looking back in the light of these biblical truths. What I know will be true here from this vantage point, I'm writing with certainty to you. That there is nothing, having written from this perspective, looking back, there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God that is through Christ Jesus. So, God is the who of my confidence. God is the who of my confidence, not myself. I join with Paul in saying, "I I have no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. I know my shortcomings. I know my failures. I know my sins. I'm not confident in myself. Because knowing me the way that I know me, It brings about fear. When you make yourself the source of your confidence, when you, in truth, know your inconsistencies and your shortcomings, I can have no confidence in the flesh because it creates only uncertainties, it creates doubts, it creates fear. It brings accusations from those that would desire to see me condemned. So the who of my confidence is God. Because I know how unfaithful I am, I can look only unto him, the one who is always faithful. He is the who of our confidence. And I pray that he will be the who of your confidence. Let's pray together. Father, how often it is that we need these reassurances. That just as you inspired Paul to write these thousands of years ago, to write these words in a way that that evokes such an emotional response from the people of God. Father, I pray that these words might connect us all the more to you, in our confidence and assurance in you, who you are, in your provisions, in what you are accomplishing, and in your love for us. That we would not look unto ourselves and be fearful. That we would not trust in our own merit and be forced to live with uncertainty and doubt. But that we might lean solely upon you and go forth into this world confidently because you are the who of our assurance.